This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. In the reality, it takes about 13 years and about $130 million in R&D, as well as regulatory costs to bring it to market. So, um, you know, it, it, it takes a long time. It takes a lot of money. Um, and there's a huge investment in, in these products uh, in order to bring them to market. Hello and welcome to the Farm Traveler podcast. This is episode 60, and today we're going to learn all about GMOs, which is my favorite subject. So our guest today is Michael Stebbins from GMOanswers.com. So Michael is going to talk to us today about the whole basically the whole kit and caboodle of GMOs, how they are approved, how science shows that they are safe, and also what are some really popular misconceptions and what are some things that consumers actually are correct when it comes to GMOs. So this is a great conversation and a great interview to listen to if you're interested in learning how GMOs are approved, how the FDA, the USDA, and the EPA all have checks and balances in place to ensure GMOs are healthy for you and they're healthy for the environment. It also, he's going to weigh in his thoughts on how GMOs, kind of where they fit in terms of organic versus traditional agriculture. So this is an awesome conversation. I, I love talking to anybody whenever it comes to GMOs. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. Be sure to check them out at simplygmoanswers.com. They have a lot of really great content it kind of walks you through the science of GMOs, how they affect your health, how they are approved, kind of their impact on the environment, and a lot of really great stuff. And I mean, what better way to learn from GMOs than experts in agriculture that research and deal with GMOs on a daily basis? So this is episode 60 with Michael Stebbins of GMO Answers. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Awesome. Michael Stebbins from GMO Answers. How are you doing? 
I'm doing very well. Uh, it's a nice he uh, day here on the East Coast and looking forward to uh, a nice, nice weather coming up soon. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Um, so I'm excited to talk to you. I'm always curious to learn more about GMOs and all that good stuff. So before we dive into that, um, kind of tell us about your background and kind of how you got started working with GMO Answers. Sure. I've been with GMO Answers for about four years now. Uh, and prior to that, I was uh, doing communications for another nonprofit uh, that dealt with the issue of animal research. So uh, kind of always in the science communication field. Uh, and I grew up on a farm. Uh, so between the farm background as well as the science background, uh, you know, kind of communicating about GMOs and trying to educate people and clear up misconceptions about the technology uh, definitely uh, seemed like a natural fit. There you go. That's pretty cool. And so I see that gmoanswers.com, the website, is kind of controlled by crop life. So how exactly did that whole, did that whole thing start and how did GMO Answers come to, come to fruition? Sure. Uh, GMO Answers was launched in 2013 uh, by a, a nonprofit called the Council for Biotechnology Information. Uh, and that is a trade association. It's a 501c6 uh, as opposed to a 501c3. If there are people out there who know the difference between the two, one's a, more of a charity, the other one's a trade association. And as a trade association, we have members and our members are the, the, the big seed companies. Um, and we realized that there was a lot of uh, misinformation about GMOs uh, on the internet, in the media, online, on social media. Uh, you know, you know, GMOs had been, you know, introduced to the U.S. market back in the 90s. And, you know, we, there was a bit of a, a push uh, to educate people about this new technology back then. And nobody seemed to really have a big problem with it. So um, we kind of thought that, okay, well, this, you know, we can go ahead and sell these to farmers. And, um, you know, this is just the next step in, you know, the types of uh, seeds that are available for farmers. Uh, but 20, fast forward almost 20 years later, and we found that there was a lot of misinformation, a lot of pushback on the technology, especially by people who didn't under, don't understand how it all works. Uh, so we uh, created the program uh, to really be consumer-facing and uh, answer people's questions uh, about the technology, about GMOs. Uh, and then this past year, um, the Council for Biotechnology Information uh, which had overlapping members with CropLife International. Uh, the uh, CBI uh, dissolved, and now the, the Pro GMO Answers program is a program of CropLife International. And as part of that uh, change, uh, we're focusing a lot on uh, being a resource uh, globally. Uh, so not so much on just, you know, what happens in the United States, but, you know, GMOs around the world, because it, it is a global technology. GMOs uh, seeds are, you know, imported and exported throughout the world. They're grown throughout the world. They're literally uh, grown on every single continent uh, around the world. So we just wanted it to be a resource uh, for uh, pretty much anybody. Uh, on the planet, uh, and given the fact that you know the internet is makes many things much more global than local, um, it was a good time to go ahead and do that. Yeah, your website is so is so well laid out, and I mean, it's for our listeners. It's just GMOanswers.com, and I mean, you guys have stuff like GMO basics, like your health and safety, GMOs nutrition, is it in livestock, and kind of the whole environmental impact of it. And so I've I've been following it for a while, and it's very educational by asking people what they wanted to know. And we found out a lot about what 
they had questions about what they needed to know, um, what they knew, what they didn't know, uh, and kind of designed our website around that. So instead of the website being designed about how we think that it should be presented, the website really is designed about, you know, what do we feel, what do people tell us that they is the information that, that they need? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's such a good idea to kind of build the website around that. And kind of going on, so GMOs in the United States, everybody thinks that everything has like a GMO equivalent. So I know in the U.S. there's only 11 current crops that have any sort of genetically modified variety. So what exactly do GMOs look like in the United States? Like what are some example crops that we have right now that have GMO varieties? Sure. Well, uh, just a quick correction. Right now, there's only 10 GMO crops in the country. Uh, there's 11 GMOs, technically. Uh, the GMO salmon is the 11th, uh, but it, since it's not a crop, you know, it's, you know, not part of, you know, plant science or, you know, seeds, uh, but we, you know, certainly are very well aware that is it, it is a genetically modified organism and it is approved in the United States. I don't believe it's on the market yet, but uh, should be happening anytime soon. So we've, you know, for the United States and in, in the conversation around uh, U.S. You know, consumers, you know, we, we do talk about the 10 crops that are available to them. And, you know, I think there's a lot of misinformation on that. I mean, I think that certainly corn and soy are certainly two of the most well-known and most common, um, especially in, in terms of uh, adoption among farmers, uh, as well as sugar beet. Uh, sugar beets has a high adoption rate as well. All of them around the 90% uh, rate. Uh, although with corn, you need to really separate between field corn, which is designed for animal feed and industrial uses, versus sweet corn, which is your classic corn on the cob and things like that. Uh, sweet corn is a uh, much lower rate of GMO, uh, only about 25%. Um, so, you know, just again, educating people around those types of uh, information uh, is the types of things that they're looking for. Uh, alfalfa, which is a uh, another type of animal feed primarily, is um, a, a, another uh, large uh, GMO crop in the, in the country. Uh, canola is a GMO for predominantly. Uh, and then again, people don't really eat canola uh, as a kind of as a standalone type of crop. You know, usually that's uh, made into oils or things like that. Uh, in terms of the items they might find in the grocery store, probably the two things that they would run into at the grocery store that would be recognizable as the crop that they're familiar with would be uh, the apple. Uh, there is uh, one company making uh, GMO apples uh, called Arctic uh, Apples, and they've got a couple of varieties of that. And one of the things they really specialize in is uh, sliced apples. Uh, or apple slices, bagged apple slices, uh, because uh, the technology that is used in that helps prevent browning. So one of the big issues with when you slice apples is that it turns brown rel relatively quickly from uh, just from exposure to air, uh, not because of being rotten or being old or anything like that. It's just literally the exposure to air will cause browning. Uh, so these apples uh, are, you know, have been, you know, created in order to help prevent that. So um, you know, you know, convenience foods are a huge uh, segment in the grocery store these days. And having pre-sliced apples uh, in a bag is great for people who uh, just want something to grab and go. Uh, and similar, uh, potato uh, also has a non-browning uh, benefit to them. Uh, again, which is great for French fries. Great, you know, anytime you have any type of sliced potato. Um, and, you know, that's that's a great way to uh, serve up the food and also help uh, reduce food waste as well. 
there's a couple other uh, GMOs that are available in the grocery store. Uh, the Rainbow Hawaiian uh, papaya, uh, which is primarily found in Hawaii uh, and on the West Coast. Um, you know, it's a very specific variety of, of papaya, so not every papaya you would see in the store uh, would be that. Um, and then, and technically there is a, a type of summer squash that is available, more of a regional product, um, but not very common. You're unlikely to find that in your local grocery store unless you live in certain areas in the South. Right, right. And you guys' website has a great graphic kind of showcasing the 10 crops and kind of their uses. Like just looking at it right now, um, it's got potatoes and it, it lists out, it's got genetic traits where it's reduced bruising and black spots and the uses, you know, for human food. And also other ones like you're talking about um, alfalfa and field corn, their uses are livestock feed and a bunch of others. So it's, it's so well laid out. And I really, really like that. Um, and so I was wondering about the apples because I know there's something like 2,500 types of apples or something crazy like that. So, so it's not a number of different apples. It's really just this one trait. Would you say there are Arctic apples that are the g genetically modified variety of apples for non-browning? Well, Arctic Apple is the name of the company, uh, but just like any apple, it, it had, comes in different varieties. I believe they have a Granny Smith. I think that there's a Golden Delicious. Um, you know, I think there's a Fuji Apple uh, that have these traits. So, uh, you know, as with any you know apple, um, you know any you know grocery store, it'll carry a variety of different um, varieties, as it were, uh, and. It depend, you know, each of them have different uh, benefits and de different uh, strengths. You know, I grew up on an apple farm, so this is very near and dear to me. And there are some apples that are great for eating, just fresh off the tree. And then there's other apples that are, um, you know, better for baking, better for using an applesauce. Um, you know, God forbid you use a red delicious in an apple pie. You don't want to do that. Uh, but, you know, something like, a, something like a Honeycrisp or something like that is great for eating, great for pies. Uh, so each of these have different uses, uh, and they're bred that way. You know, years and years and years of research, uh, scientists, farmers, cooperative extension agents uh, have spent a long time, you know, kind of doing these types of breeding uh, to get the type of apple that is good for different things. And that's one of the other things that we talk about on the GMO Answers website is that, you know, we've always been modifying our food. You know, the fact that there's 2,500 different apple types of apples that majority of which are, you know, specifically made by researchers uh, for a specific uh, trait, whether it's crispness or tartness or uh, maintaining shape or size or color. All of those things uh, come into play when developing a particular variety of apple. And it's the same thing with all, all sorts of, you know, crops, corn, wheat. There's, you know, breeders out there that develop these crops for uh, any number of reasons uh, that will help farmers uh, grow them and then help meet consumers' uh, desires and demands. That That's such a great point because I feel like a lot of people don't realize that. We've been modifying plants for, for thousands of years and really GMOs really help us speed up the process. And so, I mean, help scientists and farmers create better items that can grow quicker or grow with um, disease to tolerance or pesticide tolerance. So that's a really good point that you brought up. Um, so what exactly does the approval process look like in the United States? I didn't know this, but I did some research a few weeks ago and both, well, all three the FDA, the EPA and the United States Department of Agriculture all kind of have their own say so and they check GMO crops for, um, different things like their impact on the environment, if there are any health concerns or anything. So what exactly is the approval process like for GMOs? 
Sure. Well, it depends on the GMO. I mean, every GMO has different traits and different things that uh, are, you know, are done. Uh, so it depends on what the end product is going to look like. Um, but yes, I mean, I think the, the most important takeaway is that yes, GMOs are regulated. I think that there's somehow there's a misconception that any anybody, you know, what any of these companies can just bring a GMO to market without any research, without any approval. It just, you know, these are just kind of forced on the American public. When the reality, it takes about 13 years and about 130 million dollars in R&D as well as regulatory costs to bring it to market. So, um, you know, it, it, it takes a long time. It takes a lot of money. Um, and there's a huge investment in, in these products uh, in order to bring them to market. Uh, for the most part, uh, yes, three agencies in the United States, uh, you know, when you're talking about United States approvals, uh, do get involved in the process. Uh, USDA, who basically, uh, you know, take a look at, you know, is it safe to grow? And is it safe for you know farmers to grow? Is it safe for you know uh, you know agriculture? Uh, the FDA is it safe to eat? You know are there going to be any you know uh, health implications? And then uh, the EPA is it safe for the environment? Is it going to have any deleterious effects on the environment in which it is being grown? Uh, so that's a kind of a, a general framework of the three agencies that are involved uh, worldwide. You know, any number of different agencies in different countries and regions um, take a look at these, uh, you know, uh, crops as well, and they have their own approval process. Uh, some company, uh, some countries uh, require individual uh, applications, whereas other ones, uh, other. Uh, country can kind of go regionally. Uh, some of them kind of trust the American, you know, if it's approved by the USDA and FDA, then we'll take their word for it. And then that's good enough for our, you know, good enough, good enough for our country. And then there's other countries in which, well, you know, you may have done those tests, but we want to do our own tests, our own research and our own process. So uh, it does kind of make uh, it difficult for these companies to, to bring these companies to market uh, products to market because they, hey, they may have to do a different process for any, com any country that they want to export it to. Right. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. That's really cool to hear. I mean, yeah, a lot of people think that it's, you know, it's quote unquote, big ag is just controlling these, um, the GMO crops, but they go through years and years of approval to make sure they're safe for consumers to eat, they're safe to grow, they're safe for the environment. So that's all a lot of really good points. Um, sorry, what do GMOs look like internationally? I know they're kind of I know Europe doesn't have the best opinion on them. So what, is, what do GMOs look like internationally? Well, it's a mixed bag. Um, I think the United States and Canada uh, and a lot of Latin America are, you know, strong growers uh, of, of, the, of GMO crops. Um, you know, the, you know, you made a very good point about uh, GMOs in Europe. Um, one of the things we hear all the time, is like, oh, well, GMOs are banned in Europe. So why should we have to eat them? And there's just a lot of explanation to um, be told around that. Well, first of all, they're not banned in Europe. There's actually grown in several countries. Uh, there's R&D uh, going on in several countries. Pretty much every um, you know universities, you know, plant science university or ag university uh, does research on these uh, you know technologies. Um, and the other thing to keep in mind is that Europe is the number one. Uh, importer of GMOs per capita uh, in terms of continents. They import a, a ton of GMOs for animal feed uh, because they don't have enough land mass and agricultural space to grow enough, um, you know, grasses, corn, 
uh, wheat, soy, uh, crops uh, to feed the animals that uh, the livestock uh, on their on their continent. So the, it is very much a misnomer that there are no GMOs in Europe. Uh, they are imported, they are grown there, uh, and it's also a not necessarily a unified uh, voice there either. Um, the European, you know, the Food Safety Authority there approves a lot of GMOs. Um, uh, the scientific community and the agricultural community very much supports the concept of GMOs, uh, but ultimately individual countries, uh, because of pressure from environmental activists or green activists, um, decide that they don't necessarily want to uh, allow them in their own particular country. But Europe, Europe as a whole, it's difficult to think of them as one monolithic uh, entity. There's a lot of different varying factors and you talk to different people and you talk to different agencies and you get different answers about the state of GMOs there. Right, no, that's a very good point. Um, yeah, so going off of that, I know that there's a lot of right and wrong misinformation or right and wrong information out there on GMOs and a lot of the stuff that is kind of against GMOs isn't exactly like scientifically correct. So what are some of the biggest like issues you all are fighting about educating GMOs. So what are the biggest misconceptions, misconceptions out there that you guys see? Well, I think one of the, the, the easiest ways to think about this is that a lot of these you know, misconceptions or objections to GMOs really are not anything that's really unique to GMOs themselves. It's just that people don't necessarily know that much about agriculture, they don't know that much about their food. You know, we hear a lot about, oh, well, GMOs are patented, that's why I'm against GMOs. Well, lots of things are patented. Lots of food, lots of crops, organic crops, non-GMO crops, flowers, uh, there are, you know, um, trees, lots of trees are have patents on them. So, but they only hear about patents when somebody makes an accusation of GMOs. And it's the same thing for different types of traits. Um, you know, it's like, oh, I don't like GMOs because they're herbicide tolerant, and that means you can use and as much Roundup on as you want. Well, there's a lot of crops that are naturally herbicide resistant, um, and there's a lot of crops that are herbicide resistant that are not GMO. So again, a lot of uh, this, this concept that something is bad because it's a GMO is not necessarily where the, um, the, the truth lies. It's that people don't just necessarily know uh, how a lot of their food is grown and how farmers really do their job. Uh, they only hear selective things um, and they just kind of equate GMOs equals this bad thing I don't like without realizing this, oh, this thing that I don't like. Yeah, it's you know quite common and it's quite, um, uh, matter of fact, within the agricultural community, and if they were really objecting to that, they wouldn't be objecting to you know, a lot of our food. You know, GMOs use pesticides. Well, organic food uses pesticides. Organic crops use pesticide. Conventional crops use pesticide. Um, so, it really is just kind of, you know, separating what you, their concerns are versus okay, is this unique to GMO? Or is this just something that you're being told that you shouldn't like because you're against, you know, you know, agriculture? Yeah, no, those are all very good points. And I feel like a lot of the people that are against GMOs, most of it comes to uncertainty. Like they don't know how it's going to affect their health or they haven't done a lot of research. And I actually got into some Twitter beef a few months ago with um, this random Twitter page. It's like against GMOs. And they, they sent in an article saying, hey, GMOs are bad. And I was like, no, they're not. They go through regulations and all this stuff. They're safe to eat. 
And they sent me this article on their website saying, hey, check this out. This is the data that showcases GMOs were bad. And every single thing on that website said was from like scientific, scientific communities just saying, hey, we need more research on GMOs. Not one of those resources that GMOs are bad. It's very interesting, that's for sure. And I think that's... I think that's part of the inherent flaw on, of, with science, and we're seeing this with the pandemic that we're all facing right now, is that you know the way that science really phrases things, they never say anything with a definitive answer. They always say, based on all the research that we know at this point, we can say that these are safe. Um, no scientist worth their salt would ever say, and we never have to worry about anything. That's just how the scientific method works, because they can only go on the evidence that we have so far. And the research and the evidence that we have for GMOs, which have been literally researched for 30 years, um, which is, you know, we've had GMOs have been on the market longer than cell phones. GMOs have been long on the market longer than iPads. Um, you know, the research, the bod complete body of research is, has shown that GMOs are safe to eat. However, one thing that science will always say is that if the data that comes forward in the future changes that scientific consensus, then the scientific body will change their mind about their opinion about that. So at least, you know, science is always open to new ideas, but the data has support has to support that idea. And it's not one study that will, you know, change people's minds or change the science. It's a collective body of evidence that will change the science that's involved. So we're kind of at a disadvantage because scientists tend to couch things with a lot of maybes and based on and ifs and qualifiers, uh, whereas people who are anti a lot of these things uh, make these very declarative statements uh, that are not necessarily borne out by the evidence and by the science. That's all, those are all very good viewpoints. I mean, science just basically says, we're 99% certain that it's fine, but we need to further research. We need to further study this so that we can all make sure that we're safe. So I think that's a very, very good point. Yep. And science is, you know, always go ongoing. You know, it's not like you know, we, oh, we looked at this once and we're done. I mean, virtually any field of science and any field of research, uh, there's always ongoing research uh, just to, you know, repeat the results to help bolster positions and to find out whether, you know, the existing science is, is accurate or not. Yeah, exactly. Oh, very good point. So you kind of touched base on organic a, a couple of minutes ago. Where do you think GMOs fit in terms of organic production and conventional production? I know a lot of organic producers do not um, grow GMOs and usually to be certified USDA organic, they can't grow GMOs. So how do you think GMOs fit into the whole organic versus conventional production debate? Uh, well, two things on that. Well, um, you are correct. Uh, GMOs are specifically excluded from the USDA organic program. Um, it, there is, you know, it's not so much, it's not, it's, you know, it's just not done. It's like, no, it is specifically excluded. When they were developing the standards back 20, I don't know, 10, uh, 20 years ago, um, you know, they looked at a lot of different things and the people who are proponents of the organic farming wanted this exclusion. Um, but that being said, um, you know, a seed is a seed. Um, you know, organic is more of about a growing method, whereas GMOs are a type of breeding. So technically, technically, you could have a GMO corn seed 
but grow it using organic methods, meaning using organic pesticides, using organic field rotation, using organic weeding, and using organic, um, you know, soil, you know, you know, fertilizer and things like that. But because of the the carve out, because of the exclusions in the USDA organic standards, uh, it, that's not even allowed. Uh, but the reality is that there are a lot of farmers who do grow both organic and conventional and GMO crops. Um, you know, for most farmers, um, it's it's not a moral issue. It's not a tribal issue. It's a financial issue. Uh, they can grow, you know, GM corn and sell this off to one particular market. But they also know they if they keep some fields separate, uh, they can get a premium for the organic crops that they're growing. It's a different market. It's probably it's a much smaller market. I think organic is something about mm, I think five percent of the U.S. market right now. Um, where which of course that leaves ninety-five percent of the rest of the market to be not organic. Um, so farmers have to consider where they can sell their crops and where's the, the where the demand is. And sometimes uh, farmers have great success with growing organic, and other times uh, farmers find that you know the cost to actually grow the organic, you know, the, the time uh, that you need to leave fields uh, fallow and the inputs that are needed to go into the the the, the growing the organic. Uh, with organic, you can't use the most efficient pesticides necessarily, so that may mean more weeding, which means more labor costs, um, which you know again increases the cost. So maybe the the you know the margin for the farmers may not be this, as as great as it would be doing a conventional or a GMO. So all of these decisions are based on what farmers need to do in their market, in their environment, what their local community can support and where they're able to sell their crops. Um, so, you know, these decisions are not really, you know, based on any type of moral or any type of uh, ethical decisions. It's primarily done for financial reasons. Uh, although there's a caveat, there certainly is a very, you know, certainly is a small group of true believers that believe that only organic is the way to go. Uh, and there's a market for them and that's great. Uh, but, you know, as I mentioned, you know, organic is still only about 5% of the U.S. market right now. So, uh, and that hasn't really has not changed uh, that much uh, over the last, you know, 10 years or so. Uh, so, uh, even though organic has a very much uh, large share of voice uh, that people hear about, um, realistically, realistically, when you look at the market, uh, market share. Uh, organic is not that huge of a portion of what people are actually eating. And at GMO Answers, we don't really, you know, we don't try not to position ourselves as being pro-organic or anti-organic, uh, partially because the two can coexist and that we we want people to have choice. If people want to choose organic, uh, all, more power to them. Good for you. You should have the choice to buy whatever you want. And if that's organic, then that is your choice. Uh, but don't take choice away from other people is all that we really ask. Right. I like that. Don't take, just because you think one production method is better, don't take another choice away from somebody else because they might think completely opposite of you, but they still have, um, they've done their research, they have their beliefs. So I think that's a very good viewpoint. Yeah. If if you support choice, that means that a variety of choices have to be available for people. Oh yeah, exactly. So going along, um, the environment. I know everybody's getting more and more involved about the impact we're having both 
um, just consumers as well as agriculture. So how exactly do GMOs help with um, reducing our impact on, on the environment? Well, I think the number one reason, and again, just like with many of these, it depends on the specific GMO, depends on the specific crop. Like the rainbow papaya doesn't really have a positive or negative impact on the envi environment. Uh, that's really not what the trait is for. Uh, but for the big ones like uh, corn and soy and sugar beets, uh, one of the biggest reasons uh, that it has a positive impact on the environment is because they are all herbicide resistant. That means that farmers can use less pesticide. They can use a very specific pesticide, and depending on which it, which it is, certainly Roundup Ready is the most common, but it's not the only one. There's any number of, uh, you know, uh, pesticides that are available uh, to use on different uh, crops, depending on the trait that has developed, been developed for them. Uh, but they can go through and they can spray their field once. They don't have to spray it again and again, because the more times you have to spray, the more impact you're going to have around your environment. So, you know, the, the, one of the biggest misconceptions about, um, you know, GMOs is that it means, oh, you can just spray pesticides on your crops and that you just slather them with pesticides or you douse them with pesticides, when really the, the opposite is true. One and done. You can go out there, spray it once, you take care of the weeds, it doesn't affect the, the crop, and you're done. Um, and, you know, the fewer, I think everybody would agree that the fewer passes with the sprayer, uh, not only is it better for the environment, but it's better for the farmer, saves money, gives them time to do other things. Uh, anytime you don't have to take that tractor out into the fields, that means you're using less gasoline. It means you're, you know, less, you know, car CO2 coming out of the exhaust. So all of these different things that help reduce the impact on the environment are really important. Uh, but unfortunately, um, the the message that, you know, kind of the anti-GMO people put out there is literally the exact opposite. So it's unfortunate uh, that the the message, the benefits uh, are not being heard. And we're out there trying to tell people about them, but people just don't really want to hear about it because it kind of goes against the uh, kind of preconception of what, what these do. Yeah, no, that's a very, very good point because I feel like most of the people that are against GMOs just think that GMO crops get sprayed like 99% of the time and just pretty much continuously. But when the opposite is the fact is that they get sprayed a lot less because of their genetic traits. Yep. I always tell people, if you want to know how a GMO crop is grown, ask a farmer. Don't ask some internet activist. Don't ask some person that heard it from, you know, their great aunt through some email that was forwarded. Ask a farmer. Find out what, how much they spray on their, you know, crop per acre. And ask them whether that's been increasing or been re reducing. Ask them if they are, you know, thankful for GMOs or if they, you know, feel as though it's a burden. I mean... I think there's this misconception that GMO uh, farmers are forced to buy GMOs because they have no other choice. When reality is, you know, farmers do what they need to do for their farm based on the financial situation and, and based on uh, what works for them. If growing GMOs wouldn't work for them, they wouldn't have a 90% adoption rate. They would be like, no, I don't want to grow this anymore. Get, you know, as with any industry, you know, they have, you know, they buy their seeds from their local, you know, you know, ag supply store. They'll, if it wasn't working for them, they say, yeah, it didn't work for me. Give me something else.
So, and the fact that there's adoption rate of about 90% on a lot of these major GMO crops, it means that they are working for farmers. Farmers do want to grow them and it is beneficial for the farmer. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That is such a very good point. Um, we had one of our guests on and she earlier in, I think season one, she started this hashtag called hashtag ask a farmer, not Google. And I think that is such a good idea. Don't, don't ask gurus or health nuts or anything on, on online, ask a farmer how they use GMOs, what are some benefits and all that. And that's very good advice to follow. Yeah, absolutely. And we definitely see a lot of people talking about how they want to know more about where their food comes from. They want to know more about their food. And I always ask them, well, do you follow any farmers on Facebook? Do you follow any farmers on Twitter? And they never do. It's like, well, how can you say you want to know more about your food, but you don't actually have any connection to any farmers? So, um, you know, I always recommend people follow farmers. And if they ask me uh, for any names, I, you know, I always provide specific examples of people who I feel are not only great, you know, farmers, but also good communicators about what it is that they do. There you go. Man, that's good advice. All right. Well, well, man, this has been such a great interview learning about GMO Answers. Um, if people want to learn more, obviously they can go to gmoanswers.com. Uh, what would you mm -hmm. kind of advise them on when they're kind of going through you guys' stuff to kind of learn about GMOs for themselves? What, what um, advice would you give them? Sure. And again, it, uh, it depends on your audience. You know, I mean, if, if the audience is, you know, primarily ag related. Um, it's not necessarily about learning about GMOs, but it is learning how to talk about GMOs. And, you know, the website, you know, as you mentioned at the very beginning, you know, we talk about GMO basics. We talk about GMOs 101. We talk about GMOs facts versus myths and conceptions. I think starting in those places are really important because it's not only are you educating yourself about these things, but it's also providing tools for you to educate others uh, about it as well, because I think that a lot, you know a lot of your listeners may be, you know, farmers who already you know are growing GMOs, uh, but they don't necessarily have all the facts in hand, and they don't necessarily know like what are some good ways to tell others about what it is that I do. Uh, so GMOs 101, GMOs fact versus myth, GMO basics, I think are all good places to start uh, when poking at the website, and of course follow us on social media as well on Twitter, on Facebook, and on Instagram. Exactly. Well, we'll link all that stuff in the description for this podcast. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for being on. We love GMO Answers. Can't wait to see you guys continue to keep up the keep up the website and keep up the good fight. Thanks so much for being on. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. You very much. Appreciate it. Have me on uh, anytime that you want. Oh, we will. We will. Thank you.